Hi everyone, this is Eugene, and I'm so grateful that Paul was able to have this opportunity to interview Miki Dezaki, the director of Shusenjo, a documentary that brings together a wide range of views on the subject of comfort woman. It's a politically charged issue, particularly between Korea and Japan, and this conversation touched upon several issues that uh, I've been interested in for a while, in particular that of reparations and the question of who writes history. In our first episode with Ken Liu, I focused on the importance of why stories are important. And if you ever had any doubts or belief that stories are confined to fiction, you'll have a lot to think about when Mickey articulates so well the balance of viewpoints between governments and the older and younger generations. Uh, and I guess additionally, this struggle of what Mickey calls moral and legal responsibility is particularly pressing today, especially when fake news is rampant and technology is accelerating the process by which we cling to the versions of history that we want to believe and surround ourselves by people who you know espouse beliefs that we want to agree with so i have a lot of thoughts on this obviously but i think i'll save that for a future recap for now uh i just wanted to say thank you so much to maggie deegan for editing this episode and here's paul and mickey tasaki Families podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation today with Mickey Dezaki, who is a filmmaker and director of a documentary film called Shusenjo on the Korean Comfort Woman. Mickey, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. So, for those of you who haven't heard of uh, Shusenjo from media outlets like the New York Times or haven't seen the film for yourself, could you give listeners an overview of your film? My film is on the comfort women issue, which some people say is a sexual slavery issue. Comfort women is a euphemism for these women who were used as sex slaves during World War II by the Japanese Imperial Army. So a lot of these women were Chinese, Korean, Taiwanese, and of course there were Japanese women as well being used as uh, comfort women. My film goes into the debates and discussions over this issue. It's a deeply controversial issue in East Asia, especially between Koreans and Japanese. There have been many films on the comfort women issue, but more focused on the women's stories and testimonies, which are very, very important to watch. However, those films don't get much play in Japan as the narrative of the comfort woman issue in Japan has sort of moved more towards a nationalistic view of the the issue and so a lot of women's testimonies are just not trusted even if you were to see this movie of a woman telling her really harrowing story a lot of japanese people would just be like oh that's just these korean women trying to pull at your heartstrings it's not true kind of thing so my film focused more on the documents and the, the sort of arguments that surround the comfort woman issue, the history of the issue, and the human rights. And I do touch on testimony as well, but I don't really show testimonies that much. But I talk about why testimonies might be inconsistent at times and why just because they're inconsistent, that doesn't mean we should totally write them off. 
Yeah, absolutely. And before we delve a little bit deeper into your film and this broader discussion, I wonder if you can provide a bit more historical context. I'm sure you had to do a lot of research and even from your discussions with different people in the process of making your film. But linking it to this podcast and our namesake of Divided Families, when you look at The Comfort Woman, were most of them, from what you've seen, separated from their families? And and how did that separation happen from the narratives that you've seen? A lot of the times, at least for the Korean Comfort Women, they were deceived by brokers or soldiers, Japanese soldiers into doing some kind of job like factory working or something like that or even the word comfort women in Japanese even in English I guess sounds like oh maybe I'm just going to comfort these soldiers somehow singing or dancing or something like that most of the women who were taken from Korea were very uneducated and poor You had a lot of women who were deceived in that way, who were easily deceived because they were probably pretty young. And then also you had the situation where some of the girls were sold actually by their parents. Now we can say this is part of this patriarchal society and basically they didn't value uh, women or girls as much as men and things like that. And the thing is, A lot of the Japanese right-wingers like to say, well, because there were these cases of parents selling their daughters, that makes Japan not responsible for this issue. But the way historians kind of look at it, they say, actually, the Japanese military knew that these people were so poor that they used this patriarchal system in this kind of idea of selling your daughters off because they knew they could get women that way. There are multiple ways that they were separated from their families. Of course, the hardest ones to hear about are the ones where they were just totally deceived and they get to these comfort stations and then they're raped almost as like a uh, initiation sort of thing. There were stories of girls realizing once they were on the train that they wouldn't be able to see their parents and just kind of yelling to, that they wanted to get off the train or something. One very famous story, it's only famous because the woman has become a very uh, well-known activist speaking out, but she basically was enticed with some nice clothes and shoes. And, you know, at the time, she's so poor, she's seeing that she's going to get this really nice dress, these, you know, pumps or whatever, and it's like the most alluring thing for her. And she gets it, and then she realizes, like, she's on a train now. And from that point, she was a comfort woman. Another thing that's really horrible is that once they return back home, they're shunned by their communities as shameful and dirty. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that aspect of what happened. But I'm wondering if you could help us understand what are the grievances then? Because I'm guessing that after World War II ended, Korea became independent again from Japan, that there were no comfort women should have ceased to be an issue. Could you help us understand what what are the grievances then in South Korean society and in other activist communities about comfort women? You know, is it about reparation from the Japanese government? Is it about remembrance? Why is this such an emotionally charged issue to this day. So 
for so long after the end of World War II, many of the women just were silent about this. And the reason why they were silent was basically to protect themselves and their new families that they had. They don't want to come out as this woman who was raped or, you know, maybe they were seen as these prostitutes or something that they had to do a horrible thing as opposed to victims of sexual slavery. The thing was is that South Korea was under a dictatorship at a certain point after the war till about the 80s, 90s. And then in that time, there's basically no feminist movement going on. But right after that, you have like these big feminist movements in South Korea, and they're hearing these stories of these women secretly within their groups of women who were used and abused during World War II have never spoken about this. There was a lawsuit that was filed against the Japanese government by some former Korean comfort women in the 90s, and that sort of catapulted the story into the headlines. And, and what they were looking for was, you know, a formal apology to, of course, remember the history and reparations. The thing is, is that since the 90s, so much has happened. And at this point, you know, money isn't the huge issue right now. It's more about remembrance. I remember talking to some professors from the U.S. who lived in Japan during the 90s. After they watched my film, they were just like astonished because they were like, in the 90s, you just couldn't deny this whole thing. The 90s Japan, once this whole thing broke, was quite apologetic. Everybody was pretty sincerely upset about this history. And if you denied it, it would be just such a horrible thing to do. Whereas in, in Japan now, the mainstream narrative is that, oh, these women are lying. Not that they were comfort women, but that they're lying about how bad it was or that they were abused or stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like that is a really important point that, that you just made. You know, a lot of critics, I think, just say that Japan has never apologized or Japan, you know, as a whole, as a society has never owned up what the Japanese military and government did during World War II. But there were numerous cases like the Murayama Statement and Kono Statement you said in the 90s, I, I'm just curious, maybe we can talk about it later in this conversation of education in, in, in uh, Japanese society in particular. But I'm really glad you brought that up. One thing uh, a lot of people don't understand about these apologies, yes, they were sincere at the time, but unfortunately, a lot of them were undermined in various ways. So there's this difference between moral responsibility and legal responsibility. And everybody is really hung up on these two ideas. Moral responsibility is what the Japanese government has said that they've taken. They've taken moral responsibility. And that means they have apologized numerous times. But the former Korean comfort women and the activists that support them say, no, 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 we want legal responsibility to be taken. And what legal responsibility means is they want some kind of legislation that formally acknowledges these women's experiences and the suffering that they went through, a formal sort of government-funded reparations, and something that promises to remember these women through the teaching of history. Now, 
the Kono statement actually promises to teach the history to the Japanese people. However, because it's not legally binding, it's not a legislation, it has basically been forgotten. So in the 90s, Uh, A lot of the textbooks had comfort women in the history books, but in the 2000s, it basically disappeared from textbooks in Japan. So this is why it's important to have legal responsibility as opposed to just moral responsibility. That's where everything gets kind of muddled because Japanese people say, look, we've apologized so many times and a lot of them were sincere. Yes, that's true. However, they've gone back on a lot of their promises. And so if you go back on your promise, then can you say that that was a a good apology? Because the promise is kind of a part of the apology. I always try to explain this to Japanese people that there's a good reason why Korean people can be angry because they've been promised certain things and they, they haven't been fulfilled. And so they don't feel like these apologies are true apologies. Well, one, I just want to say, I think that reminds me a lot of, of course, very different issues, very different circumstances, but this ongoing debate on reparations and redress in the United States, you know, whether it's regarding slavery or whether it's regarding Japanese American internment camps. But another thing that I'd just like to say, based on what you were just discussing, was that I feel like I've seen you being criticized. Maybe it was for uh, your your YouTube videos on on racism in Japan, but for being anti-Japanese in some way or anti-Japan. But I don't think that's the case at all, because as you just said, I think by helping people in Japan understand fault lines in Japanese society and also help them understand why Koreans and activists are being critical and upset, I think that's actually helpful for democracy and for Japanese society <laughs> at large. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that you see it that way. And some Japanese people do see it that way too, but a lot of uh, Japanese nationalists don't see it that way. So, you know, there are people who are like, oh, this is the most anti-Japanese film ever. And then the other Japanese people who support the film will be like, wow, this is like the most pro-Japanese film I've ever seen because I can tell like Mickey really cares. He wants Japanese people to understand this history. Yeah. And where have you found the, you know, speaking of history and how it is taught, where can one go to find the so-called objective history or objective facts about this, this comfort woman issue? Can you take us through a little bit more about the textbooks and how this history is portrayed in the Japanese classroom versus maybe in in a South Korean classroom or even in the United States. And and I guess not all mediums of education are the same. I expect that some people learn about this issue through their family members or friends. Right now in Japan, most people get their information on the comfort women issue through social media and mainstream media, which is a problem. That's a problem because the people who are actually very good at getting their talking points out there tend to be one side. And now that it's not taught in the schools, you don't have, you know, professional teachers or historians teaching young Japanese people about this. So they're getting most of this information 
through Twitter, Facebook, blogs, and even Japanese mainstream media. Although we have something that's kind of similar to BBC, it's called the NHK, they tend to side or lean towards the Japanese government's positions on a lot of things. I'll give you an example. In 2015, they had this comfort women agreement that was supposed to settle it forever, basically. But what they didn't say in NHK broadcasts were that a lot of the comfort women were not consulted on this agreement. And because of that, it's very problematic. You can't have an agreement between. Two governments that are basically full of men that settles an issue for these women's suffering and experiences. The way that they were sort of framing it for everybody was they said that a lot of the former comfort women in South Korea actually accepted the money. So there was like official government money that was supposed to be given out to these women. I think it was about 70% of the women accepted the money. So then you're like, oh, wow, okay, 70% accepted the money. It's only like these 30% of these troublemakers who are making this big deal. The thing was, was that this money was not reparations, it was money for healing. That's the way it was framed to the Korean women. So, healing and reconciliation or whatever is different than reparations. And these women are old, right? So they're just like, okay, I'm going to get money for healing. Okay, I guess that's fine. You know, they don't really understand what it's for. And so they accept the money. And then they present that to the Japanese public. And the Japanese public are basically like, yeah, we've paid these women. You know, what's the problem kind of thing? The other problem with that is Prime Minister Abe, he will say, I uphold the Kono statement. And every prime minister before him has upheld the Kono statement that apologizes and acknowledges the suffering. But Prime Minister Abe and the party that he is president of has been actively deleting or trying to get the、uh, mention of the comfort women out of the textbooks. So you cannot uphold the Kono statement. That promises to forever engrave the memory of these women through the teaching of history and at the same time erase the history. That doesn't make sense. This way of kind of framing it to the Japanese people that we've done everything right, we've done all we can, and then these Korean people are still angry at us. Basically, the way they fill in the blanks is Korean people are irrational, they'll never be satisfied. And so screw it. And then on the other side, you have the Koreans, and they're highly aware of the comfort woman issue. However, they've only been told sort of the most extreme stories, and there's very little nuance, even though the issue actually has a lot of nuance. And because of that, they become somewhat fanatical about this. And they're like, Japan has never apologized. Japan, you know, and it's just like, no, actually, they have apologized. Actually, you know, they, they've done a lot of things, actually, but it was all in the past. These were different times. 90s and the 2000s are totally different times, different governments. And, and how does the US play into this, if at all? Oh, the US. So the US,、um, it's presented in the film. 
But the U.S. has basically been trying to push their two allies, Japan and South Korea, together as much as possible and get them to reconcile these differences. At a certain point, the U.S. was really trying to help them out. However, I don't think the U.S. knew enough about the issue. And they sort of accepted these half apologies again. Like, oh, okay, so Abe or Koizumi are saying, yeah, they say they uphold the Kona statement. That should be good enough, right? Kind of thing. And then they shake hands. And But again, what these activists and the former comfort women themselves have been asking for is legal responsibility. They want Japan to take legal responsibility. I think the U.S., they didn't push Japan to take the legal responsibility maybe enough. Had Japan taken legal responsibility by this point, this probably this whole thing would have been over. Maybe that's interesting because I've seen a lot of stories about and and even I mean even your film the the name of your film it's almost like the U.S. has become as you say this battleground between activists for the comfort woman issue and even a couple weeks ago I saw I'm in D.C. now and I saw recently there's a comfort woman statue uh, that was erected in, in Virginia. And then also the very first one on a college campus, my alma mater. So it seems that this has become, I mean, even beyond the U.S., this worldwide phenomenon. Yeah. The other aspect of the whole U.S. involvement is that a lot of the Japanese uh, nationalists feel like the U.S. is one of the main battlegrounds for this issue. And so they want to convince Americans of their narrative. And I think the point is maybe that they can flip the history. Right now, the most agreed upon history is that these women were sex slaves, but they want to convince Americans and the Western world of their narrative, and they're hoping to flip this history. But it's interesting because I've realized I don't think they're doing it because they care so much about the U.S. It's more that they want consistency with what they're teaching in Japan. So the problem is, is that when Japanese students go abroad and they learn about to comfort women, they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. So then there's this sort of dissonance or, you know, they start questioning what's being taught in Japan. What they want is um, Japanese students to go to the U.S. and basically learn what they're teaching in Japan and the way that they kind of do this without being able to completely flip the history is that they're making English language websites that look somewhat legit. So like if a Japanese student were to research in English the comfort women issue, these websites would come up. One of them that actually got taken down recently, but was up for quite a bit, was called the Princeton Institute of Asian Studies, which is a totally fake thing, but it was just basically all these talking points, right-wing nationalist talking points on the comfort women issue and Nanking and all these things, you know. Wow. Well, I feel like you would get most people hooked at the Princeton. <laughs> Look much further. Yeah. Well, I was at Yale showing the film and a bunch of people there had friends at Princeton and they alerted Princeton about this. And it seems that Princeton was able to get it down eventually. But yeah, it was up for a while, even though Princeton knew about it. That's interesting. I, I was wondering if you could get a little bit into, 
because my understanding is that you had this whirlwind of a tour. Actually, I, I understand you had to cut the, this tour short a bit because of the coronavirus, but how many different schools did you show the film to? Well, the first U.S. tour was like September, October of last year. Yeah, that's when I saw uh, the film at, at GW yeah. uh, in D.C. Yeah, and yeah. I think that was around like 17 or 18 schools. And then after that, soon after that, I went to Europe for about a month. And I did about, I think, 20 or 19. It was a crazy amount of schools that I went to. And then after that, I came back to the U.S., February, March, and it was actually supposed to be extended into April. And of course, it got sh cut short because of the coronavirus, but that was going to be about another 20, 18, 19, 20 schools. And then after that, I was supposed to go to Australia <laughs> for another two weeks. So I should have actually just been coming back from Australia, but I actually ended up coming back to Tokyo uh, around March twenty uh, fourth ish. I see, and and you also had screenings for Japanese and and South Korean students or students in Japan and South Korea as well, yeah, right? And theaters. I mean, it was it was uh, played in about fifty sixty theaters, both in South Korea and Japan, for a time. And because part of why I'm so curious about this is because. This project, the Divided Families podcast, now we're trying to connect stories of family separation, but oftentimes the storytelling and story sharing have to be done by the next generation or the younger generation because the actual families who were separated during World War II or the Korean War or previous generations now don't have a voice because they've passed away or they're not part of the conversation anymore. So what really struck me was when I first reached out to you, you told me you had just finished a screening with, I think it was uh, Tokyo University and, and Seoul National University students. So I wanted to ask about that and how the reaction to the film was, but also if that sparked any kind of dialogue between these two groups of students. And, and I don't know much about that context of how that screening happened. So right, right. I'm personally really curious. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, Seoul National University is sort of like, I guess, the Harvard of South Korea, and so is Tokyo University for Japan, or, you know, it's Ivy League, basically. And these two schools had this special event where they had about 20 students from each school do this week-long bonding and learning from each other kind of event. And the end of the whole program was was with my film, actually. So oh, wow. <laughs> they had been together for a week already, becoming really good friends with each other. And then they see this really controversial film. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm there uh, doing the Q&A with them and stuff like that. It was very interesting, to say the least. So these kids, they're very sharp. Very, very sharp students. Actually, Tokyo University students tend to be on the conservative side. But because they had been together for a week-long program, they were pretty friendly with each other. And then I showed the film. The Korean students were, like, really happy about the film. I mean, because in the end, my conclusion is that, you know, I, I do believe that 
these women deserve some kind of justice. The Japanese students felt very challenged, a lot of them, I could see. They agreed with my conclusion, but one girl I remember, she said that her parents are definitely like right wing on this issue. So she couldn't probably go back and talk to her parents about this. It would be really hard for her to talk about it because they're just so convinced. So a lot of the history on the comfort woman issue that people are consuming right now are from non-historians that write these little booklets and they're easy to digest and they just have these talking points and people from like the, I guess the boomer generation tend to just love these books in Japan. They eat them up. The way it's been described to me by a historian in Japan, he said he thinks it's like a drug for these boomers. Because in the 90s, they were basically told they did a horrible thing with the comfort woman issue, and they believed it. So they're like, oh my god, we've done so many horrible things in World War II. And since then, the world has kept on with that history, because it's true. <laughs> you know, Japan and other countries and have done horrible things, and Japan did some pretty horrible things in Nanjing and other parts of China, and also with the comfort woman issue. As Japan has shifted to the right, the world has kind of been like, hey, don't forget that you guys have done this horrible stuff. And Japan's like, nah, you know, like we don't want to remember that kind of thing. So there's this kind of outside pressure constantly from the international community. And these books, and many of them tend to be written by foreigners, like white men, white American men, they give some sort of relief to this boomer generation. So the world is telling them that they did horrible things, but these books say, no, 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 you're great. Don't worry. You know, um, actually, these are just lies that have been told. And so that's where they're getting this history from. And so it's so hard for a young Tokyo University student to be like, hey, mom, I just saw this amazing film about the comfort woman issue. And, you know, it has all these different viewpoints. And I think you should go see it. I think they would really react strongly against it. One thing that I've realized, and my mom is like this too, she's not particularly right-wing or left-wing or anything, but for so long, yeah, she believed that Japan did horrible things, but she wanted to believe that Japan didn't do horrible things. So there's this desire to believe that, no, my ancestors or grandparents or could never do that kind of thing. And if there is some kind of article or something that says, hey, actually, it's a lie. Your grandparents were good people. We did the right thing. They will latch onto that super quickly because <laughs> it's something they want to believe. This is just the way it's sort of spread. It kind of boils down to this desire to believe that they are good people. And then in a twisted way that becomes like we're better people than Koreans, you know, because for them, Koreans lie and we don't lie kind of thing. That is, huh, that resonates. Yeah, that's why I feel like there is hope with the younger generation, but with the older generation, it might be a lost cause.
with the younger generation, part of the reason why I have some hope, even though it looks grim. When I was in Germany showing the film, I didn't know this, but Germany was not so apologetic about the whole, you know, Holocaust Holocaust Nazi thing. And it was really the younger generation of Germans, German historians and German scholars, and just German people in general, who pushed their government to say, hey, we need to teach this proper history. We need to atone for this. Maybe if more Japanese youth understood the history, that might happen as well. So there is a bit of hope in that. I didn't know that about German history, that it wasn't that they were always apologetic and they always did the right thing. It was actually pushed by the German youth. Hmm. I didn't know that either. There is hope, kind of, with the youth. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that also struck me about your film was when uh, you talked to young people on the street and asked them about the issue. A lot of uh, Japanese youth seem to not know about the issue. I'm wondering, is it the case of being fatigued about hearing about the issue and and, and Koreans and other activists demanding for apologies? I mean, I I can't imagine that gets gets to you at times. Or or is it the sense of uh, this issue being taboo? You know, there were Japanese people who watched the film and they were like, no, I know young people who know about this. And it's like, yes, there are some young people who know about it, but it's because they saw it from a news report. And mostly the news reports were about the agreement or the statues. And it was always framed in a way that was like, the Koreans are pissing us off because they're putting up these statues, even though we apologized. So it was always had a negative sort of twist on it. But a lot of young Japanese people don't watch the news. They're so busy with their studies and, you know, school activities or whatever that they just don't even know what's going on with that kind of stuff. So a lot of young Japanese people, because they don't learn it in schools, they have no idea about the comfort women issue. I can't tell you how many professors have said I've assigned your film as extra credit and there were so many students who came back and said they had no idea about this so these are you know 18 19 20 year olds who don't know anything about the comfort women issue so for Japanese people it isn't fatigue for Korean people it's fatigue Korean young people have heard about it so much sometimes that they're just like oh my god I can't hear about this anymore you know But they did say that watching my film was a fresh take, and they appreciated that. With Japanese people, it's either they don't know about it at all, or they are just very angry at Korean people about it because they think it's a lie. Or I think maybe with like this sort of older generation, but also it kind of leaks into the younger generation too, there is a taboo. I mean, there's so many taboos in Japan. A lot of Japanese people just don't discuss politics or anything like that. So you're, of course, not going to talk about women being raped during World War II. You barely talk about immigration or anything like, you know, in Japan. So that is like a huge kind of taboo 
to talk about anything sexually related. I'm not saying that you will never see anybody. I interviewed quite a few, maybe like seven or eight people on the street in Japan, just randomly. And I would say 70% of them didn't know anything. A couple of them knew about it from the news, but they said that they didn't learn anything in school about it. And a lot of them were just like, yeah, I've heard about it. I just don't know that much about it. What I'm hearing is that this is much more nuanced than just a black and white Japan versus Korea. But I mean, it seems like these divisions cut across political lines within Japan, generational lines within families as well. So it seems like there are a lot of, you know, divisions that need to be overcome. Yeah, it wasn't just Japan. I've had people in the U.S. who are like, I'm a Japanese American, I'm married to a Korean American, and we haven't really been able to discuss this issue very well, you know. And your film kind of was able to give us more context on the issue, you know. So, yeah, it's not just in Korea and and Japan. You know, this is also happening in U.S. and Europe with the diaspora. Yeah, maybe maybe I should watch it uh, with with my girlfriend. I'm Korean-American and she's (laughs) Japanese-American. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Okay, so is she it second generation? Yeah, yeah, Nikkei. First yeah. generation. Or Nisei, Nisei, uh, Nisei, yeah. Nisei, okay. So she, she's like me then, okay. So interestingly, what I found was um, a lot of the first generation Japanese, which means that they came from Japan to the U.S., they tend to be more supportive of the Japanese nationalist view on this. Whereas their children, second, third, fourth generation kids, tend to be more supportive of the comfort women. And I always wondered, like, why that was, you know? I was like, why? And what somebody described it to me, they said, it's because the first generation Japanese are from Japan, and so they are the majority group there, basically. And they identify with their government and their country so much. They believe that they're doing the right thing. Whereas second, third, fourth generation of Japanese Americans have been discriminated against. They've faced discrimination. They've been marginalized. So they don't have this trust in the government. And they know what it feels like to be oppressed and denied and ignored. So they're able to hear these women's stories in a more sort of a sympathetic way. Wow, I've never heard of it. I've heard about it described like that, but that is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a I, I didn't know about this either. So I was just like, "Oh, wow, that's it's really fascinating." I mean, I've even heard some of these like right-wing nationalist activists who are like really fighting against the comfort women. Their children in America are against them. They don't agree with their parents on this issue. It is generational too, definitely. You know, I, I feel like we could have a whole nother conversation about the, the Japanese American experience. And I think I mentioned to you that in the podcast, you've also interviewed uh, actually two different stories of uh, family separation, two different women who were uh, you know, sent to internment camps during World War II. 
And it's just linking back back to this conversation is that I think in the Japanese American community, there's a lot of activism behind not forgetting and remembering that history and rallying around you know that and, and redress and you know making sure that the government addresses those grievances. But you know what's crazy? So I'm a second generation Japanese American, meaning I was my parents are both Japanese uh, from Japan. I didn't even know about the internment camps until I was in college. I took AP American history in high school and I didn't learn about this. So yeah, we do need to remember this. It's amazing that there are probably so many Americans who just do not know about the Japanese internment camps. Yeah. And those two issues, I think, internment camps and then I think the comfort woman are never, you know, mentioned in the same conversation. I think the people who are activists in one camp and activists in the other never talk to each other, which I, I just think is very interesting. Actually, um, in LA and San Francisco, there have now become coalitions. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool that these Nikkei Japanese Americans have started to support these uh, comfort women groups. Wow. That, that's amazing. Yeah. It's really cool. One interesting thing that a Japanese American activist told me, he said, a lot of the denialism that they heard back when they were trying to get reparations was very similar to the denialism that they were hearing coming from the Japanese nationalists about the comfort women issue. So for instance, one big talking point that Japanese nationalists will have about the comfort women stations is that they'll say, oh, look at these pictures of these comfort women at these comfort stations. Look, they're smiling. You know, they're having a good time. And there are pictures that are kind of like that, right? They're not always in tattered clothes and, you know, chained up or whatever. But during the time that the Japanese Americans were trying to get reparations, the people who were denying the suffering of the Japanese Americans were saying, look at these photos from the internment camps. Look, they're playing outside. They're having a good time. And the thing is, is that they don't understand that they're just making the best out of a horrible situation. They're human beings. They have to survive somehow. It's not that they wanted to be there. It was that they had to survive. They use that against the movement, these photos. And these Japanese-American activists who fought for redress and reparations, they were like, yeah, we can see the Japanese government is doing that with the comfort women. So it's hard not to support them. I just, wow, I'm definitely going to look into that because that's uh, really cool. Yeah, it was, it was really cool to see. Wow, and I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. So just, I just have one last question, which is about this issue of taking a big step back and big picture, looking at closure, which is something that I feel like every divided family or every case of separation ultimately wants to achieve. And oftentimes we think that the physical reunion will take care of things finally and definitely. But what do you think, what have you seen that closure looks like for, for the comfort woman issue? And, and, you know, not just for these elderly women, but what does closure look like for the activists and what what does closure look like for the right wing nationalists? Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it's a tough one. It's a tough one because they all kind of want different things, right? The right-wing nationalists in Japan, in a certain sense, have kind of won the battle in Japan. So in their minds, they say this issue is over. The women in their minds have lied, and they were just, in their minds, just prostitutes. So for them, it's over. Closure for the Korean people, not just the uh, former comfort women. I think the Korean people would be happy if the former comfort women were happy felt okay with whatever, you know, uh, apology that uh, Japan gave them. But they've been very clear that what they want is legal responsibility to be taken. So until they get that, I, I don't see true closure happening. Now, is that possible? Is le taking legal responsibility possible? I think so, but it'll take time. The current administration in Japan is quite nationalistic. I mean, Steve Bannon came to Japan and said Prime Minister Abe was Trump before Trump. <laughs> so we have a long way to go here, here in Japan, but uh, it's not impossible. I do believe these women, I think the youngest of them is probably around like 90, 95 or something like that. They don't have much longer to fight. It'll really be up to the youth, Korean youth and Japanese youth, to keep this fight going. It'll be tough, but I see it as something that's important for the international community. If these women cannot get justice, what does that mean for women in the international community? What kind of message does that send? If these women do get justice, that's a huge win for women everywhere, I think. But uh, if they can't get justice, this will be sort of one of those things that, you know, we realize, okay, Japan and the international community is still not ready to really take women's testimonies and experiences of sexual violence seriously yet. Closure's a tough one. I... I <laughs> I hope it happens. You know, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, Japanese and Korean people have a lot in common. And on a, on a very personal level, I know a lot of Japanese people who like Korea and I know a lot of Korean people who like Japan, the culture, and they, they have a lot of respect for each other in a lot of ways. And so if you could just sort of come to a reconciliation on these kind of issues, I think the relationship between the two countries could be quite amazing yeah that's my uh that's my personal dream as well but in you know in the in the meantime i guess it's hard to say when this when the coronavirus situation covid will will get better but do you have any screenings coming up or in the meantime anything that listeners or, or people can do to support your cause? Yeah. So the great thing was, is that uh, last time I was in the U.S., I uh, was able to sign on with a distribution company in the U.S., in New York City. So we're trying to get it out first to universities. And then after that, we'll have the film uh, available for personal purchase or, you know, rental or whatever. And uh, in the fall, 
If things calm down with the pandemic, I will probably come to the U.S. and show the film at some select universities, like the ones that I wasn't able to go to or was cut short from this past tour. So yeah, hopefully I can get back. Hopefully everything's good by the fall, but uh, yeah, it's hard to say. Every day, every day things change with this whole thing. So in Japan, surprisingly, it's pretty relaxed. Yeah, same thing in Korea, I've heard. It's, it's really weird. Well, in Korea, the nice thing is that they've actually been able to test so much and, and deal with it in a good way that they've essentially contained it. Whereas in Japan, they haven't tested at all, really. <laughs> and we don't really have a lockdown. We have suggestions. <laughs> so when the Japanese government suggests that you limit your outside uh, activities, a lot of Japanese people are just like, okay, I'll just go outside. <laughs> you know, like there's people playing in the playgrounds and parks and, you know, for them, it's like the first time they're getting all this vacation time, basically, you know, or it's time at home. So, but uh, yeah, thank you so much, Mickey, for, again, for taking the time to do this. And, and I personally learned so much and, and actually feel inspired after this conversation. So I really appreciate it. I'm glad to hear that. And hopefully I can get another uh, screening in, the uh, Washington, D.C. area, and that'd be great to see. Yeah, that would be great. So much for listening, and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, please follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the music and see you next time.